We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Basically, I don't think there's a right answer for anybody. And I think you have to make the best decisions you can. And I love the first bit of asparagus. But also, like, if you're going to buy asparagus in January because you want it, do that. That's better than buying, like, a TV dinner. And that is better, you know, a TV dinner shared with a family around, like, a, watching a movie together is better than, like, wolfing chips alone in your car. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard. Here with senior editor Anna Hiesel. On today's episode, you'll hear a conversation between Matt and Abra Behrens, the author of the recent cookbook Roughage. Later in the episode, Taste editor Tatiana Bautista will be speaking with Oria Abraham, who used to write jingles for commercials but is now the owner of Oria's Malaysian Kitchen. But before we get to that, Matt, tell me about Roughage. You and Abra got to talk a little bit about your home state, right? Oh, yeah. We are both from Michigan, but not just any part of Michigan. West Michigan. Shout out. I'm from Kalamazoo. She's from near there. And we talk about the produce of our of our hometown, our homeland. We talked about her farm, Grainer Farm, and what she's doing there, which is pretty remarkable. She's doing these tasting menu uh, dinners that are very similar to Blue Hill. Um, Shout out to Abra Behrens. Remember that name. She is a rising star in our industry. Here's Matt speaking to Abra. Abra Barons, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I had to have you in because we're both West Michiganders. Michiganders. I was I say we're Michiganders. I bullet butchered that shit. Okay. <laughs> I am okay, a Michigander, but we grew up in West Michigan. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing how sort of small world it is. <laughs> small world, but I wanted to ask you, okay, like this is our time right now to like mm-hmm. really shout out the food in West Michigan because mm-hmm. I feel like Detroit gets a lot of shine. Mm-hmm. Northern Michigan gets a bit, mm-hmm. but we you know, where we are from is farmland and it's some of the most beautiful produce in the world. Yeah, I mean, it always blows people's mind to find out that Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation. Uh, but it's really true, and especially along the west side, because we get that um, the protection from the lake. So it's fruit belt, lots of vegetables, also enough flatland to do grains and yeah. things like that. So There's yeah, it's grains everything. there, too. Uh-huh. Um, I saw you were just at Virtue. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the cider there, too, is, is definitely... I think yeah. in America, it's mm-hmm. maybe Washington State has some great ciders, too, but Mm-hmm. Michigan, West Michigan has some beautiful ciders. Yeah, I think that uh, Greg, um, who, you know, his family owned Goose Island in yeah. Chicago, uh, he really wanted to to kind of, you know, he's tasted ciders from all around the world yeah. and wanted to do it. So, yeah, it's such a cool thing that um, those kind of world-class things are, are cropping up in, in the mitten. And you are working at Graner Farms? Mm-hmm. Is that what yeah. you say, Graner? Yeah, Graner. Mm-hmm. Graner Farms. And I, I, I looked at the, the reservations to book, and it, they're like <laughs> filling up like months in advance. Yeah. What is what is happening at this farm? Yeah. It's amazing. So Grainer is, uh, we're a certified organic vegetable farm, and we also are growing a small grain program. Oh, so wow. lots of wheat, rye, some barley and some kernza, yeah. a little bit of spelt, things like that. Um, and what I started there, they've been farming since 2009, and I started in 2017 to do uh, dinners on our farm. So I uh, people arrive. It's a really small, intimate room. It's about 24 people right now. We're, we are going to work on a larger space, but it's not. Mm-hmm. we're not there yet. 
Um, so 24 people, they arrive, they do a guided tour of the farm with either our farm manager, Katie Burdett, or the owner of the farm or our property manager, Wesley Reith. And then they land back in our farmhouse and we do a seven course meal that is based exclusively around the produce that we're growing. So we'll bring in meats and cheeses and things like that from the region. Uh, but, you know, it's never really like coconut mahi-mahi. No, and it <laughs> runs May through August or September typically? Uh, no, all the way through the end of March. Oh. Um, yeah. So, And that's a big thing about Midwestern food scene that I think is is underlauded is that we it is easier to eat in the winter than people think. Um, we, had, we were serving our produce through all of our dinners. So that's a combination of storage crops like carrots and potatoes that are in cold storage and also preserved things, you know, things in the freezer are pickled mm-hmm. and fermented. But then also we have four hoop houses that uh, protect the greens. So we had fresh arugula and spinach until the polar vortex, and then that killed the arugula. Uh, but the spinach is was kicking until two weeks ago. So you're really not struggling. And what, yeah. what are some of the dishes that you're making? I just like mm-hmm. want to um, kind of call out some of your own culinary talents. Yeah, so every menu is different. We've never repeated a menu. Um, sometimes we'll do variations of the same dish. Like we had a lot of kohlrabi this year. So I was doing a kohlrabi apple salad with wheat berries and then an apple cider bear blanc. So taking sort of a slightly fermented sweet cider, bringing it down and then mounting it with this really nice cultured butter that we were making in-house and then um, putting that over the top of it. So it's sort of like fresh and crunchy, but also warm and buttery. Uh, So things like that. And then in the spring, we'll have a ton of greens and asparagus and things like that. Um, We always do a cheese course and we always do a green salad course. And our green salad comes after the primary protein is served. Um, And that... What I love about the green salad course is that it really is reflective of the farm. So in the spring, it might be, um, you know, a giant bowl of these really tender spring greens. And in the middle of summer, when the lettuces are having trouble, it might be uh, some other like shaved cabbage or kale or something like that. That's a little bit more like heat hearty. And then in the winter, you know, we've done it where it's literally just like, five leaves of perfect arugula with a really light dressing because that's what we have. Yeah, and, so, and that's okay. In a tasting menu, you can have five mm-hmm. leaves and it feels okay. I mean, this sounds yeah. like a little bit like Michigan's Blue Hill. I'm just uh, call it out. I'm certainly inspired by by Blue Hill and Blackberry Farm and yeah. Flora Farms in, um, down in Mexico. Sure. Like, There's so many places that are really telling the story of local agriculture through what they serve on their table. And that is, uh, that is the goal and that's the inspiration. And this is Grainer Farm. Is it getting the attention um, from the national press? Are you getting restaurant critics from Chicago to come out? Well, we're just really starting. And so right now um, we're we're starting our third season of dinners. And I, so yeah, I mean, the people who have come have been really, really mm-hmm. supportive. It's funny, uh, Chris Hayes came uh, mm-hmm. with his family because his family vacations in that area um, and has since they were little, his wife's family does. And um I like, you know how it is when you follow someone on Twitter and then you meet him in real life. And I was like, hi, I'm Abra. He's like, I'm Chris. And I was like, cool. <laughs> cool <man. laughs> Sounds good. Let's Enjoy have dinner. the lettuce. Yeah. yeah. And then he was like so complimentary. So yeah. I feel like someone who gets to eat in New York regularly, if they're excited about it, then it means we're doing something right. Just now. have to shout out West Michigan. You have to get there. You can, it's a, it's a, like less than two hour drive from Chicago, yeah. mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. really, and it's beautiful when you go around the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, May through September, we are the West Michigan Tourism Board. Yes. <laughs> Let's segue to your wonderful book 
roughage because this is how my mother and my grandmother mm. and my great grandmother referred yeah. to vegetables growing <laughs> yeah. up. Uh, but it, you know, I've been in the East Coast for 17 years, so right. I don't hear that word anymore. But oh, what's to you? What is roughage? So for me, it's um, I wanted to title the book that as sort of a playful nod to the fact that I think a lot of people still feel like eating vegetables are an obligation, and <laughs> uh, that idea came to me because when I was doing these dinners, um, both at Grainer and then also at the farm that I had started up in Northern Michigan, mm-hmm. I invited my dad each time to the friends and family, and was like, Dad, you know, I really want you to tell me what you think. Give me your honest feedback. Because he is someone who is not in the food media world, but also loves food and is the reason that we, you know, he and my mom eating around our kitchen table was always like a big cornerstone of our lives. And he's eaten at like French Laundry and, you know, all of these places. So at the very first meal he came to, I was like, Dad, you know, what did you think? And he's like, well, Abra, you know, it's it was a very good meal. It's a lot of vegetables. And I was like, well, we're a vegetable farm, Dad. (laughs) And then um, he was like, well, it's just, it's a lot of roughage. Maybe you could serve some bread. And so, uh, (laughs) and I was like, that is the most, like, exactly what I, like, was hoping to get from him. (laughs) So it was sort of always a play on that idea that, you know, it's seen as drudgery, but I don't feel like eating vegetables is drudgery. And in fact, I think it's a celebration. Yeah. What can we learn from a chef and Mm -hmm. and a farmer? I mean, I know that's a little broad, but I really, I think it's specific because a lot of vegetable books are written by dietitians, are written by mm. journalists, are written by uh, producers who maybe aren't working on the farm, and mm. certainly not chefs. But what can we learn about vegetables? I, I mean, I think that. The way I see it is both as a farmer and as a chef, I spend a good deal of time with them. And I should say, too, I am no longer farming. Our farm is managed by a woman named Katie Burdett. And so um, but I spent about three years full time farming up in northern Michigan. Um, And so you're looking at them and handling them day in and day out for more than eight hours a day. And then you go home and have them for dinner. So I think that what I took away from um, farming and what I hope to share with people in this book is how to read the landscape of the vegetable. So like the best example I have is um, lettuces, like head lettuce. Lettuce does not like it when it's hot. So in the middle of summer, when you get those like highs of 80 and 90, um, the plant is feeling stressed. And so it's going to try to go to seed, which is called bolting. And so what happens is that the entire head of lettuce kind of stands up in this way and it gets a little bit more conical. And that is it preparing to send up its flower shoot uh, to set seed. And what happens then too is that because the plant is trying to protect that seed, it gets more bitter because that's a plant's natural defense mechanism against pests. And so uh, if you cut, if you can get it in time, then you still have good greens. If you miss that window, you have these like really bitter greens. So as a farmer, I know what to look for. And as a chef, I know, oh, chicories are also a bitter green. And I love grilling those. I can probably grill this lettuce that would normally go to waste because it's not good for a Caesar salad or whatever um, and and give it new life in this other context. So articulate. And I think I wanted to ask you about CSAs because mm-hmm. oftentimes with CSAs, you get these bitter, bitter greens Mm -hmm. that they look like they're supposed to be lush and and Mm -hmm. sweet, but they're actually bitter. And you write in the book, um, you make the statement, um, CSA will make you a better cook. Mm -hmm. Like, like, let's talk about that a little bit. I think CSAs are wonderful things, but oftentimes it's difficult to unpack the box and Mm -hmm. think about 
uh, yeah. how to make them. And I think that's exactly it. unpacking the boxes. I think the first hurdle to it. Um, and I think the reason that a CSA makes you a better cook, very similar to the amount of time farmers and chefs spend with vegetables, you too will spend a lot of time mm-hmm. with vegetables yeah. <laughs> uh, because they keep showing up. Yeah. Um, and so I think the reason it makes you a better cook is there's an element of vegetable triage that happens where it's like, okay, I've got these really tender greens. I've got hardier greens. I've got a bunch of root stuff and some onions and garlic, for example. Uh, you know, you're going to learn that the really tender greens don't last as long in your fridge. So maybe you have those the first night and then you start to realize like how to pace it throughout the yeah. week, um, which is, again, anytime you're spending more time with ingredients, you're going to become better equipped to wield them. Um, and then also, I think that it's it's purely by necessity that, you know, unless you're comfortable uh, buying something just to throw it out, you're going to use it more. And so you will just have more opportunity to use things and be pushed outside of your comfort zone. I mean, the the reference to CSA in this book is in the kohlrabi chapter uh, because that is the number one vegetable that people are like, what do I do with this alien that just showed up? And in you get kitchen? it a lot in CSAs. Mm-hmm. A yeah. Lot, lot, and because and it's a great crop for a lot of growers um, because it is very cold hardy. You can plant it early. You can harvest it late. It tends to withstand the summer heat, um, all of those things. And so by virtue of being forced to use it, uh, you will become better at using it and you'll get tired of it. And so you'll think of new ways to be using it, which is exactly the experience I had. So in the book, how are you uh, breaking down kohlrabi? Because each chapter is is a vegetable, which is a, is a paradigm that's been used often in cookbooks. But I think mm-hmm. you've been super successful in actually making me interested throughout mm-hmm. on, in into these vegetable chapters because I think it's very difficult. Yeah. But I think you break it down with these beautiful illustrations, great photography. So let's let's talk about the kohlrabi chapter. Thank you. Yeah. So my plan for it, for this book, had been, you know, in the Midwest, but I think in all regions, you really get the same ingredients year in and year out of your primary ingredients, things that you're growing in that area. Um, And so wanting to give people uh, enough jumping off points for it to feel new and exciting each year. So the way that I think about that is you've got the same ingredient and you'll have similar cooking and preparation techniques for each one. So I always refer to this book as sort of an NCAA bracket in reverse. (laughs) So you start with the winner, the ingredient, and then it's broken out by technique. So like for kohlrabi, it's raw and baked. And then um, for each technique, there's a recipe. But then also that is a structure that then you can sort of play around with the sort of accessorization Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. So for the raw one, you know, the recipe is with apples and lentils and a like really tart vinaigrette. But you could equally do that same technique and put it with any number of other things that will look almost unrecognizable on the plate, except that you know, it's the same thing. So that's the idea. You clearly have a lot of experience in restaurant kitchens. You speak so fluently about cooking. And I wanted to go back to your time working at Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, mm. uh, a legendary deli and restaurant. Um, I think I'd like an Ari uh, Weisenwig story because that guy is kind of a legend. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that the real magic of Zingerman's is the partnership between Ari Weisenwig and Paul Saginaw. Um, Ari is the person that I think hammered home for me that you really can taste the difference in ingredients. And the idea that a dish is really only as good as its worst ingredient was his sort of driving force and and really honoring the producers that were making these world-class products. Way before Whole Foods, way Way before before. there was like these, you know, websites that would um, canonize uh, the producer. I mean, before the internet, yeah. Before the internet. Before the internet. (laughs) Yeah, they opened in 82 um, and were really, I mean, Ari was traveling the world to find producers to be able to sell their product in 
Michigan, which is not the same as in New York or in San Francisco or L.A. And um, so, yeah, that was really his um, his sort of driving motivation. And then Paul is his title is the chief spiritual officer at Zingerman's. And he is the I, I believe the person who kind of owns the emotional quality of Zingerman's, the idea of servant leadership of, um, you know, as a manager, your job is to provide good customer service to your frontline staff so that then they can provide it to the guest. The idea of being the best part of someone's day. And I think for me there, I really, you know, Zingerman's, I I started working there when I was in college and I stayed working afterwards. So I feel like Zingerman's was like my graduate school. And um, it was there that I realized the the why and the how of what I wanted to do of being a part of a small business and a food-based business. And the why was because of how much Zingerman's touched every employee's life as well as every customer's. Um, But then the how was... Uh, that I loved cooking and I could I could use food to do that. Mm-hmm. And what kind of like tastings were you doing as employees there? Because I mean, just all of it every day. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was the other thing that was sort of this like radical. I mean, transparency is a funny word right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, you could open up absolutely anything on the shelves, like the $150 bottle of balsamic vinegar, taste it like it, nothing was precious. And I think that that is such a real and important thing about food because it is a privilege to be able to eat. Mm-hmm. And so wanting to share that without any of the like um you know ceremony is maybe the wrong word but Mm -hmm. without kind of standing on it in that way Mm -hmm. um and i think my favorite story that gets to this is um somebody came into the deli one time and i had only worked there for like a week or so um so i was very unsure of this like new system of like just give everything away (laughs) um and this person came in clearly maybe having a rough time in life a little bit down on their luck and um said you know i'm diabetic and i need sugar right now and i'm i you know i can't pay for this um and I was like, this person is lying. And Paul came over and just gave him a jar of Luza pear juice. I was like, here you go. Like, I hope things work out for you. Mm. And I was like, but how, like, what if he's lying? He's like, well, what if he is? You know, like he still needs it. Yeah. And and we are in a place that we can afford to do that and to take care of your neighbor. And to do that with such ease and such grace was really a watershed moment. I love me. that story because it is, uh, they have a socialist bent there, but mm-hmm. clearly... It's a social democracy, too. Right. And it's like, it's like capitalist socialism, you know? Capitalist and, socialism. <laughs> true. I'm remarking the new phrase right now. But, um, you know, and I think that that's true. Paul often says, like, earn as much money as you want. You have to, and cash is king. You have to run a financially solvent business so that you can do all of these other things. It's just, you know, their stakeholders are different than shareholders. Capitalist and, with socialist souls. Yeah. We'll say, because <laughs> truly, if you walk into Zingerman's, um, it is one of the most expensive <laughs> Mm-hmm. Fine food shops in America, yeah. it beats a lot of places, but you know it, it's not about margins. There, they they get right. the best stuff, and it's well. Really what I rare. always said to people when I worked there is, they would ask like, you know, why is this sandwich? I mean, I think now sandwiches are almost like twenty dollars, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, I have full health insurance. Like, that's part of what you're paying for. And, um, you know, you're paying for us to have a night crew that can come in and employ people who are getting back on their feet. And also, which makes it easier for me to make more food because I spend less time doing that deep clean. That's such a part of all restaurant kitchens. So progressive. Uh, So where did you go after Zingerman's? Where did your career Mm. go? So I went to Ballymaloo, which is, uh, I got really lucky for working at Zingerman's for a lot of reasons, one of which was that my chef, Roger Bowser, had done his externship at Ballymaloo House in the south of Ireland. And so I was thinking, like, oh, I got into the Peace Corps. Maybe I want to do that. Maybe I want to go to cookie school. I don't know. And he said, well, you know, 
you, if you want to continue in food, you should go to cooking school. There are some things we can't teach you in this very high volume specific business, uh, but you also don't need, you know, the long education. And so they connected me to Jarena. Jarena accepted me into her cooking school. And so I went to Ballymaloo from there. And uh, Ballymaloo is on a hundred acre working organic farm. And I really cemented that idea of food as a uh, indicator of a place, as a part of a, of a, the terroir, the landscape yeah. of it. So, yeah. And Ireland, I feel, never really gets the respect it deserves in terms of its natural resources, especially its seafood, but also its farms. I mean, let's just give a shout out for Irish cooking. Like, What were some yeah. of the dishes that you were preparing at, the, at this place? Uh, I mean, it, it was a lot of traditional Irish and traditional French stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that I met Myrtle Allen, who was the founder of Ballymaloo um, and who still was working in Ballymaloo Kitchen uh, when I was there, kind of on and off. I think she was 85 at the time. Um, and I said to her, you know, thank you for, for teaching me this and having the space. And she said, well, you know, a farmer won't suffer a bad Swede. And a Swede is uh, uh, rutabaga. Um, and so it was just about, like, how I, these people who eat very coarse foods, like, won't take a bad version of it. And there was just something so beautiful about that idea of um, really trying to reflect back what the farmers were growing and eating in this kind of refined way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's... It, no, it's a good good memory. Um, whenever you think of celery, you hear the voice of Paul Child. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great yeah. line from the book. Lots of great lines of writing. I haven't even talked about the writing. The writing is actually exquisite. Like, Thank nice you. work with the writing. What does that mean? Uh, well, I mean, to be honest, I probably hear Stanley Tucci's version of Paul Child from the movie. Uh, but it's and it's a trope to talk about. You know, I really think of all of these ingredients almost as little characters and wanting to write these vignettes about them. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to talk about with celery was how it's this thing that is sort of ubiquitous. You know, it's part of mirepoix. It's this like um, the onion celery carrot mixture that is in everything um, in traditional French escoffier cooking. Um, but it never very rarely stands out on its own and I think that that's true of a lot of vegetables that they end up playing second fiddle Um, and so I was thinking about that and thinking about how Paul Child said um, when he was talking about falling in love with Julia Child that it was Julia all along and she had been in his life for so long and he had just never noticed and that's sort of Mm -hmm. how I feel about celery that it's this amazing ingredient that I feel like I never really noticed Um, and then once I did it started playing a very large role and I mean they're both kind of long and lanky you know know, those things kind of go together for better or for worse in my brain yeah Yeah. I mean I think uh, celery in mirepoix is 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 fundamental um, but really how are you preparing it raw because I think raw celery can be amazing yeah and I think it's so in the um in the chapter, I talk a little bit about the difference between sort of the local seasonal celery and then the like larger scale production celery. I have yet to have local seasonal celery that I've enjoyed eating because it's so intense. It's like very, very tannic. It can be very stringy, but it's such an amazing flavor uh, with other things. And so I like to use the leaves in things or but like the honestly, the regular grocery market celery, it's so crunchy and refreshing mm-hmm. and um, it just feels surprising each time. So a lot of times what I'll do for stock celery is either just shave it raw and put it into a salad. Uh, The recipe that's in the book is a little bit of a play on a Waldorf salad Mm -hmm. um, and trying to kind of pull again into those like classic things, but with that modern edge. Um, And then I also really love braising celery, uh, which is a slow cook. um, And and that feels sort of like cooking cucumbers. It's a way that we don't always 
see that ingredient and so wanting to kind of shine a light on that and then also celery root which is you know you probably know the same species but bred for different characteristics mm-hmm. so stock celery was bred to have larger more tender stalks and the root was bred to have a larger root ball and now they're sort of separate plants and we get into celery purees i feel that's yes. like the common mm-hmm. preparation yeah and we have to shout out portage michigan the celery city yes. west michigan absolutely yeah they uh it's it's a good soil for a celery around there it really is sure. uh, you really are from michigan oh i <laughs> I certainly did not lie that I've lived in that West Michigan for 18 years. Um, Why do you struggle with the romanticism around gardening, cooking, and general lifestyle media? Mm. You make this statement, and it says a lot, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think I wrote that um, when I was really thinking about how is food portrayed in our sort of general landscape. And I think that for better or for worse, what well, maybe arguably for worse, uh, we have a lot of shoulds around eating and uh, you should be eating more plants. You should be eating this uh, more white food, no white food, more protein, not like too much protein, all these things. And I find it very confusing. Um, or I mean, I find people finding it very confusing. Mm-hmm. And so my concern is that we're often sold this idea of what your life should be as opposed to what your life could be. And so there's, for me, I feel very privileged that I've been able to choose this life where I have a garden, I work on a farm, I get to make these very experiential meals. But that's a choice and also something that has, uh, it has costs associated with it. And so that is in the uh, green bean chapter about what it's like to pick green beans and what the idea that I see sold in some of the media as being like, you know, you're out and you're in a sundress and the light is just right and everything's beautiful and you're lovingly picking these beans out from the plant. Whereas like in reality, I'm usually picking beans so dirty and sweaty, covered in sunscreen. It's hot as hell. I'm sitting on a bucket, like my back hurts, all these things. And like, yes, I might eat them for dinner that night, but I might also be like just picking them because if you don't, they're not going to keep producing. So, and it's often at the end of an already long day and it's another thing on the to-do list. And I think by not having that conversation, um, I think it sets these standards for people that are unattainable and that feels really sinister around food because food, again, is this privilege that we get to eat three times a day. Um, And so anything that makes people feel bad about that or tries to sell them a product feels tricky. Uh, Tricky is being polite, I believe. Buy my cookbook. Yeah. (laughs) No, and I think this is... It's it's complicated. It's complicated. I feel like this is a book two meme or thread that maybe you can address Mm. in a a subsequent text. Yeah. It's very smart. there's, uh, There's a lot around it and I don't I I feel very lucky to have been given the pages that I that I was in this book and would like to continue thinking about it because I think that it's I guess basically I don't think there's a right answer for anybody and I think you have to make the best decisions you can and I touch on this in the asparagus section too like you know I love the first bit of asparagus I've always wanted to do like an asparagus nouveau festival that's like it's the new thing it's the spring it's all that stuff but also like if you're gonna buy asparagus in January because you want it do that. That's better than buying like a TV dinner. And that is better. You know, a TV dinner shared with a family around like watching a movie together is better than like wolfing chips alone in your car, which I also do, you know? So it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's everything. It's not militant locavorism at all. That's not the tone of your, of your book. And I think that's important to point out. Um, I agree with you that raw peas are are, like not good. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm actually kind of 
going a little bit more extreme, but raw peas are very difficult to yeah. negotiate. When frozen peas, which we've written about on Taste, mm-hmm. are pretty fucking delicious. They're so good. And for me, again, I'm a pretty like simple and uncomplicated person in a lot of ways. And um, for me, frozen peas are like... You know, they are consistent. They are there for me. We have a very good relationship. Whereas, like, the sexy sort of spring peas that, like, I don't know, I might taste good. I might taste starchy. You don't know. I get to choose. Like, that. that's a very, like, romantic relationship. But uh, it makes me crazy. And so, I, yeah, it's kind of, again, one of those things that, like, it always feels like sacrilege uh, to say that I don't really like peas. But, yeah, I just, they're so fickle. They are. And then you got string and sugar snap, which Ugh. can, yeah, there's a lot of work. And you get one of those threads reds in your throat and it's like game over right you're like for the rest of the day you know and uh and also too each one tastes different even from the same plant like i've literally grown peas and tasted the same looking ripeness from the same plant and they taste totally different and that seems like very difficult to manage as a chef that's trying to create that's trying to tame some of that wildness to create a consistent product Mm -hmm. i find them very frustrating real talk yeah I it's want- funny because Francis Lim, who wrote the forward and who's a good friend, uh, almost wrote the entire forward about how that is a preposterous position. So I'm excited for you guys to talk about it sometime because he's like, you're wrong about peas. I was like, no, you're wrong he about peas. He's my editor <laughs> and he works here and um, we definitely have debates about a lot of stuff. And I will be going to his desk in the yes. next 30 minutes. Throw it down. <laughs> throw it down. I wanted to ask you, I think in the prep notes, I said a word about tomatoes, dot, dot, dot. I think mm-hmm. tomatoes, you're talking about Midwestern vegetables. Uh, tomatoes are just like it comes in August. It's mm-hmm. like the most and late in September as well when they're awesome. And it's like really defines farms, I feel, in Michigan. This is my point of view, of course. Let's talk about tomatoes. Mm-hmm. How do you write about them in the book? Um, you know, maybe tomatoes are sort of the the that, you know, volatile, flingy relationship that I am willing to engage with uh, as I'm not to do it with peas, but with tomatoes, I will. I mean, they're very, yeah, you wait all summer for them. And then at late August, right before Labor Day, uh, they come on and they come on hard and they're so delicious. And it's like the perfect time of year. And it's just magic. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it takes all year to do that. And then people want tomatoes like at the beginning of June. And so there's, I think that they are one of the vegetables that can single-handedly describe the disjunct between um, the actuality on the ground of farming versus the perception of it. Um, and yeah, so there's that. I also think it's a, a place to think about um you know, hybrids versus heirlooms versus uh, commercial production or um, in tomatoes, that's determinant tomatoes. Um, and what that mean, those means of cultivation, you know, affect the final product. And and also that these are agricultural products that like you can get a tomato from the same farmer. And if that farmer had, but like, you know, two different weeks at the farmer's market, if they had a tremendous amount of rain, the tomatoes are going to be more watery unless they picked them early. It's, you know, it really shows the, the land in that way. And so I think you have to expect a level of volatility and just love them for it. Yeah, I love that's well said because I think you can get such a variable product at the farmer's market Mm -hmm. and it frustrates a lot of home cooks or delights home cooks. Yeah, and I think too, and that's another place where I think you have the opportunity to, as a cook, to again, tame that sort of wildness. And um, I forget, maybe it was Amanda from Dirt Candy wrote this thing about winter tomatoes. And also, I think that's another part of that food media thing of like, don't buy tomatoes in winter. And it's like, 
Hot um, house tomatoes are okay. Yeah, they're okay. Yeah. Or like you can treat them differently, you yeah. know, and she uh, recommends salting and letting it sit for, you know, a little bit and yeah. it creates this brine always around it. Always salt your tomatoes. Come yeah. On. And it's always, and it's delicious and it can take a tomato that's a little bit hard and make it something that isn't the same as a perfectly ripe summer tomato, but is very evocative of that and also its own thing. Um, and I think it gets into that regional seasonality that um, this idea of like, don't buy tomatoes in winter. Well, what about people in Florida? Because their tomato season is in when it's still snowing where I am. And that's, I wanted to create a book that worked for people across all regions. Ebro, we have to, one more point of West Michigan pride. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about blueberries. Oh, yeah. Oh, my Uh gosh. West Michigan blueberries are like, people in Maine are like, we got the best. And people Mm -hmm. in Long Island are like, we got the best. Mm -hmm. They're fine. But West Michigan blueberries are really good. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we're in the what's called the fruit belt. And it's sort of the like antidote to the rust belt in some ways. But (laughs) yeah, I grew up, we didn't grow blueberries where I, um, on my farm growing up, but um, a lot of friends in in high school did. And they all got city jobs as soon as they could get away from (laughs) harvesting blueberries. But but we all picked them with our, you know, grandparents too. I mean, not all of us, obviously, like everybody's family is different. But um, yeah, they're super, they range from super tart to super sweet and you can put them in everything and we um, were someone remarked recently that I, I have a lot of fruit like in savory preparations and I think that comes from having a, such an abundance of fruit in our state you know and not just apples in the in the fall but you know peaches blueberries apricots plums strawberries raspberries but like all of them Did you tackle this topic yeah. at some point I uh, thinking about it yeah, yeah thinking about because I was surprised that had never occurred to me um, how much fruit gets used in a savory preparation until some Someone who has come to dinners, um, several dinners, has said like, "Oh, there's, there's a lot of fruit involved," and what that means for the you know eight servings of fruit and veg in a day. Uh, that sometimes it's not just you know putting some blueberries in your yogurt, although it's delicious too. What's the uh, parlance for fruit in the Midwest? Roughage is vegetables. Is it- oh man, uh. I if I had to throw out like a yeah. Uh, I don't know. There isn't like a a noun. No, there uh, isn't. But probably a descriptor like. <laughs> what you could call it like juicy uh fruits like savory secrets or something like that like somehow make it like a you know kind of a a silly like uh pulp fiction kind of. love it you are thinking ahead <laughs> abra barons thank you for joining the taste podcast thank you so much for having me it's really a tremendous thing to be here so thank you Here's Taste Editor Tatiana Batista in conversation with Aria Abraham of Aria's Malaysian Kitchen. Aria Abraham, welcome to the Taste Podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here today. So you're the owner of Aria's Malaysian Kitchen, where you sell homemade sambal and kaya. And that's definitely a pivot from your previous career where you produced music for commercials. So how'd you end up here? Okay, so... Um, I worked in jingles for a long time um, at a company called Crushing Music. They were, you know, probably the best jingle house in the world at the time. We worked on everything from Pepsi and Coca-Cola to American Express, Chevrolet, Budweiser, all the all the biggest advertisers in the world. Um, I moved along and started my own company in 2005. In 2008, I had a baby. I had my daughter. And, you know, if you've worked in the ad business, you know, it requires 150% of your life. It really did. Our clients, we took them out at night. We hung out with them on the weekends. We did things with them on vacation. 
it really takes all of your life. And after I had my baby, I found myself sort of resisting giving so much of myself to that, especially since I was I was I became a mother later in life. Didn't really enjoy every part of that as I had done before. Uh, at age 40, one of my clients, a young client of mine, a producer at an ad agency, said, I want to go to a pole dancing class. Let's go. So, uh, you know, one evening, my baby's at home with my husband. I'm spinning around a pole in six-inch heels, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I cannot do this. <laughs> <laughs> so let me find something else to do. So when I had that realization, it was hard, and I didn't know what else to do. And my husband said, do food. You've cooked your whole entire life. And I didn't know what do food meant, but I started considering it, and I started thinking about it. And, you know, fast forward a bunch of years later, Ori's Malaysian Kitchen came about. Right. And so before you started Ori's Malaysian Kitchen, um, you were running your own supper club where you cooked Malaysian food. So what was that like? Oh, that was so much fun. So again, back to my husband, I was sort of despondently wondering how to start a food business and Think, trying to figure out what that meant for me and how it would fit in my life. And uh, one Friday afternoon, he came over to me and he said, here's this guy, his name's Josh Bernstein. He writes for the New York Press and he takes people on food adventures. Write him, you know, here's his email address, write to him and tell him what you do. And I kind of rolled my eyes and I thought, you know, I'm going to write to him and nothing's going to happen. I emailed him and said, I'm a Malaysian woman. I learned to cook in my mom's kitchen. I'm thinking about starting a food business, but I have no idea how. And uh, he emailed me right back and said, call me on Monday. And so that's how it started. I called him on Monday. We chatted on the phone. He said, can you have people in your house for dinner? And I said, I sure can. How many? He said, I said, maybe 12. He said, great, pick a date. We'll sell tickets. It'll be BYOB. You'll send me a menu. I'll bring 12 people to your house for dinner. And so it was April 2012, and uh, every day leading up to the event, he would email me and say, can I bring two more people? Oh, I have three friends in from out of town. Can I?" By the end of the day, we fed 21 people uh, in our home, and it was nerve-wracking because it was the first time in my life somebody paid me to cook. I'd never been paid to cook before. And that's how the whole supper club thing came about. We had a great time, and... Uh, um, what did I cook? I cooked things that I remember my mom cooking when we when she had parties at home in Malaysia. It was a shrimp sambal, you know, giant jumbo shrimp in a spicy sambal, ghee rice, which mom always made for special occasions, um, and uh, a dal, which is very unique style of dal, uh, unique to Malaysia. And uh, dessert, we had banana pudding that is steamed in banana leaves. Um, <laughs> and a lot of alcohol, and we all had a great time. Before you were having these supper clubs, yeah. were you always entertaining at home? Or, you know, what sort of experience did you have in cooking this meal for 20 people, if any? Well, I had never cooked this meal for 20 people. Yeah, that's true. Um I cooked pretty much everywhere we go. We go to we had a friend who lived in Westchester. We'd go to her house and cook. I had a friend who had a farm upstate New York. We'd go there and cook. Um, cooking at people's homes on the West Coast in Puerto Rico and in Europe and everywhere, but never for twenty people in my home. It was hard even to seat them. Um, but I think. Having been in my mom's kitchen and seen her do it, you know, she, mom and dad used to throw huge parties, 
Christmas and birthdays and things like that. Um, you know, it came together pretty well. Over time, I've had to learn how to scale up recipes. You know, for an event at Bryant Park, I cooked beef rendang for 2,000 people. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, <laughs> not in it, your own kitchen, I'm no, assuming. No, <laughs> not in my own kitchen. But over time, you know, you learn. You, you learn. Uh, coming into the food business in my 40s, it was the learning curve was really steep. I had to learn every little bit of it from pricing menus to... Um, scaling up recipes to feed lots of people. Sometimes there was trial and error. Sometimes there was a lot of error. Uh, but everything, you know, goes into the sort of learning how to operate in a commercial kitchen. Right. And so how did you make that change from starting out with supper clubs to having your own company? Okay, so um, it was maybe the 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 coldest part of winter, and I was so missing back home, so missing the tropics and the spicy food and everything. I decided to make a jar of my mom's sambal, sambal blachan, which is sambal made with fermented shrimp paste. So I made a jar of it. It was a 12-ounce jar, and I was so proud of myself. And I looked at it, and I said, that's a huge jar. Back home in Malaysia, we never make that amount, like the peanut butter jar, Mm -hmm. giant 12-ounce jar. And I sucked it away in my fridge thinking, I'm going to have sambal for weeks. A week later, it was gone. And I sort of had to explain to my husband, who's born and raised in Massachusetts, that it's a condiment and it's not like, you know, the main part of the meal. (laughs) Uh, And then it dawned on me, you know what, I'm going to have to make a lot more sambal. And the more I thought of it, it became bigger and bigger in my mind. I was like, I'm going to have to make a lot more sambal. And now we make it in an 80-gallon tilt brazer in a commercial kitchen. So so that was the first product that we launched. I, I knew how to make it. Obviously, I had to get it tested at a lab. I had to get it, uh, I had to figure out how to make it shelf stable without adding any um, preservatives, exactly the way mom makes at home. You know, because what mom puts chemicals in their food in the kitchen at home for her kids? None. So um, I had to learn how to make that recipe shelf stable. And um, that's how I started selling the jars of sambal. And so beyond sambal, you're also selling kaya now. Yes. So tell me a little bit more about that. Okay, so I had the red sambal, um, which is interesting, right, because it's it's flavored with fermented shrimp paste. And I think fermented shrimp paste is uh, is an interesting ingredient for the Western market. There are some people who absolutely love it when they get a whiff of it. Or a taste of it. And then there are other people who just cannot stand the smell of it, right? Uh, It is kind of funky smelling. Um, One day, this is pre-Sambal, pre-Oris Malaysian Kitchen. I was just cooking for us at home. And I had roasted, dry roasted some blachan, uh, fermented shrimp paste in a frying pan. My husband came running downstairs. He goes, did the cat pee in the microwave? You know, um, that's really how bad it smells. But it tastes really good. It's like fish sauce. But imagine fish sauce intensified by a thousand percent. That's fermented shrimp paste. Um, so with that out in the market, I I decided to launch a second sambal, which is flavored with makrut lime leaves, much gentler, friendlier, Southeast Asian, uh, gorgeous flavor, aromatic, floral, herby, and very accessible to everyone here. Why? Because... If you've ever been to a Thai restaurant and you've had Thai green curry, that's the 
flavor that's in there. So people eat that green sambal, and it was an instant hit. It outsells everything that I make, you know. And so I, I went home to Malaysia, and now I'm thinking, well, what else can I, what else am I missing from home that I would like to be able to get here? Because if I'm missing it, somebody else is missing it. And if it's good enough for me to miss, somebody who hasn't experienced it is going to enjoy eating it. And the answer was kaya. So I went home to Malaysia. My mom's best friend, Auntie Kim, uh, has made has been making kaya her whole life. And I said, Auntie Kim, teach me how to make kaya. And she loves nothing more than a project, especially if it's connected to food. The next day she showed up at my mom's house with eggs and coconut milk and sugar. And she's like in the kitchen and, you know, taught me exactly how to make it. Again, that was another thing that I had to work on uh, so that it would become something shelf-stable that you can put in a jar that is viable, uh, you know, to sit on a shelf and sell somewhere, um, not just something you stock in your fridge and eat in 10 days or whatever. Um, Kaya is something that I love sharing because not many people have tasted it. And you use the word kaya, nobody knows what that means. Uh, and so I've I've taken to calling it coconut jam. So coconut, most people like coconut. I've met people who hate coconut, but you know they're 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 few and far between. Most people love coconut anything, and then when you say jam, it puts a an image in their head of yeah, oh, you spread it on toast, right? So it's, who, who doesn't like that? Who doesn't like this? Pretty easy sell. It's a pretty easy sell. Yeah, and that's how I became the sambal lady who also makes and sells kaya. <laughs> Yeah, so once you started selling these sambals and kayas, I'm sure you've gotten a ton of fan mail and all this social media praise and shout-outs. So with all of that, have you seen any inventive or kind of unexpected combinations with any of your products? Oh, my God. I And I love that so much. I love getting emails or, you know, Instagram posts with people saying, look, I did this with it. You know, things that I would never in a million years think of doing. I think that their experience of sambal and kaya is wider than mine because I'm limited to what I know. And what I know is how sambal is used and how kaya is used. But here are people who have a jar of it and they have no preconceived notions, no no idea of it, and they do whatever they want with it. Okay, so um, I got an email from a from a from someone who bought it at a store in Manhattan. He said, I have been buying your hot chili sambal and putting it in Bloody Marys. And that blew my mind. You're going to put sambal in a Bloody Mary? First of all, I'm not crazy about Bloody Marys. But uh, a friend of mine is who is crazy about Bloody Marys put it in and she said to me, I'll never make Bloody Marys a different way again. So that's pretty inventive. I think it's inventive. It's also just out of curiosity and necessity he this person had sambal and was making a bloody mary put it in and just see and, what uh, happens magic yeah. right um another very interesting thing with kaya is that people are making parfaits with them Ooh. they're beautiful so i have to try that so in a jar you know in a mason jar or something a layer of yogurt a layer of chia pudding a layer of granola a layer of kaya fruit on top beautiful i've been doing it at home it's so good um, both of those kayas. Uh, people are mixing lime leaf sambal in yogurt as a dressing for, you know, um, uh, obviously with some other ingredients for salad dressings. 
um, a friend of mine who is in her early 80s and still runs marathons and is always looking for healthy snacks, she mixes it into yogurt and just eats that as a snack. She said, why does yogurt always have to be sweet? We could have savory yogurt snacks. And that's that. Um, and then the latest one was I got an email from someone from the Midwest and he said, my wife made a chicken stew and she put the pandan kaya and it was great. And I was cringing. I was like, oh my goodness, that's not what it's for. And I couldn't even imagine how it would be. I felt like I had failed them and not made it clear that you were supposed to put it on toast or pancakes or waffles or ice cream. Um, last week, somebody else emailed me and said I had made a curry and it was slightly too spicy and I put pandan kaya in it and it made it amazing. And so this is the second time now we're hearing about kaya in a savory dish, chicken stew, and now in a curry. And I said, oh, I wish I was there to taste it. And he said, it was brilliant. So um, I have decided I'm not going to sort of limit how people, you know, instead I'm just going to enjoy everything that comes about with people using, folks using sambal and kaya in as many different ways as they can. You know, why say, oh, it's for this one purpose, and so you're going to use it for this one purpose? Use it any old way you want. Um, I think that they're far more creative with it than I could personally be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really want to try that parfait. And I'm, yeah, I'm really so interested good. in uh, putting it in savory foods. Yeah, you know, I think I'm going to try that too. <laughs> he said it, the curry was too spicy. And so I'm going to make a really spicy curry, which is how I like it, and then put a jar of kaya on the table for anybody <laughs> else who, you know, who, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, think of it maybe more as a super concentrated coconut milk or exactly. something like that. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And so I was thinking about it. It makes actually total sense because coconut milk goes in curry, and that's coconut milk. Sugar um, fights the heat, right, or tempers out, evens out that, that heat. And pandan in the East is used in savory dishes as much as it is used in desserts. Yeah, and you wrap things. your chicken in it. That's right. All you wrap that, chicken yeah. in it and fry it. And, you know, so none of those flavors go against a sa being in a savory dish. So I can imagine it probably adds flavor and layers of flavor to a, a curry dish or a stew or something like that. Yeah, definitely. So from what everything you've told me, it seems like you've been sort of this ambassador for Malaysian cuisine in New York. But in doing that, are there any misconceptions that you've had to clear up? Um, okay, so I think there are a number of Malaysian food ambassadors um, here in New York. There's Kyopang at Kopitiam, which is an incredible homage to the coffee culture in Malaysia coffee shop culture in Malaysia. But as far as preconceived notions, it's interesting because I don't think there's enough Malaysian food or that, you know, that enough people know about Malaysian food for there to be a preconceived notion. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like when you say people have racial stereotypes, people don't know who Malaysians are, so they can't, haven't formed any stereotypes. It's the same with food. Um, but... When people come across Malaysian food or when they have the opportunity to taste it, the first question they ask is, what is Malaysian food? And I think most people are looking for a one-line answer, a quick answer, and the, there really isn't one. There really isn't uh, a quick answer. People say, is it Chinese food? Well, 
yes, there are uh, there is a huge Chinese population in Malaysia, but no, it's not Chinese food. Is it Thai food? Well, yes, we share a border with Thailand, and we use a lot of similar ingredients, the lemongrass, the fresh turmeric, the galangal. Uh, but no, it's not Thai food. Is it Indian food? Yeah, well, yes, but no. So Malaysian food really is centuries of commingling of cultures. Um, the Chinese came from China in the 1500s for mining opportunities. The Indians came for trading and you know plantation work. And we were occupied by the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the British. And so put all those cultures in one pot, and that's Malaysian food. It's centuries of commingling of these cultures, sharing ingredients, sharing cooking techniques, sharing different flavor profiles, putting it all together. That's Malaysian food. There isn't a quick and easy answer. You actually have to sit and experience it to kind of understand how it is different from everything else. Malaysia is the one nation in Asia that is a melting pot of cultures, mm, going back to the 1500s. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, 100 years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Malaysia was a land of opportunity and immigration and, you know, um, trading merchants were all landing there and creating this thing. And Malaysian cuisine is the, uh, the outcome of that centuries of people cooking together, learning how to cook together. I like to say it's the best of Asia on one plate. I mean, we did get some and kaya out of that. Right. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <clears throat> so apart from when you're doing um, this work to make these and kaya, what else are you cooking at home? You know, I cook everything. I love to cook. Um my husband says I make the best damn Thanksgiving meal he's ever had. Uh, you know, super moist turkey with crispy skin and, and uh, cranberry relish from scratch and really good size. So I cook pretty much everything. Um, as some of my Western dishes colored with my Asian uh, way of cooking, 100%. Um, but I think that only makes it better. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. So my, for example, my cranberry relish has shallots and crushed red peppers and ginger in it. Um, so, you know, like that. A little bit of Southeast Asian influence creeps into everything that I do. And, you know, I know when to when to go all out with it and when to pull it back. For example, let's, we're talking about Thanksgiving turkey. I'm so true blue with that Thanksgiving turkey because your house has to smell a certain way when you're making Thanksgiving turkey. It can't sound like a smell like a Malaysian restaurant when you're, <laughs> when you're making things. It's got to smell like things. Do Malaysians cook with turkey? Yes. Okay. Yes. Again, going back to the British and the Portuguese influence, my mom made a turkey for Christmas every year. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I, I didn't know that. And shepherd's pie. Weird. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Well, I guess you could put kaya on it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that might have upset some people. Yeah. Sambal and shepherd's pie actually would be good. <laughs> So what else is in store for you? Any future TV jingles about kaya toast we can expect? You know, I, I, I'm thinking of approaching my boss. My boss, the, the man that I worked for uh, in jingles, his name's Joey Levine. He wrote tons of huge jingles over the years. He wrote Sometimes You Feel Like a Nut, Sometimes You Don't. He is the man with the lyrics. He can write about anything. I'm considering approaching him and saying, write a jingle for me. I'm just worried that it will come back and be like, so so hilarious that I, I won't be able to use it <laughs> because he is he has a is a very very deep sense of humor 
um, a jingle. That would be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I'll be on the lookout for that. Well, all of this sounds really amazing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to today's podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>